I'll be reading from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galatians whose blood Pilate had mangled with their sacrifices. And he said and answered them, Do you think that these Galatians were worse sinners than all the other Galatians because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eight on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's good to see you this morning. I'm really thankful that you're here, especially if you're visiting with us. Welcome, and we're really glad that you've come our way to worship God with us. In just one week from today, our gospel meeting with Alan Webster will begin. I know it's been in your thoughts. It's been shared a lot on social media, I've heard. And I know that a number of you have taken some of the flyers, the, uh, the uh, advertisements in the foyer, and have handed those out to friends. And uh, a couple of you, I've heard, have gone up and down your streets uh, giving flyers to your neighbors. This is the kind of meeting that we have selected the topic, seeing the Bible's big picture, specifically because we believe this might be the kind of topic or the kind of series of lessons that people who may be not familiar with the Lord's Church and maybe not familiar much with the Bible would be interested in attending. Alan Webster is going to do a fantastic job. He always does when he preaches. And so next Sunday morning, beginning at nine o'clock here in the auditorium, we'll have a combined adult class. And then Sunday, Monday night at seven o'clock, Tuesday night at seven o'clock and Wednesday night at seven o'clock, uh, we'll be gathering here uh, to meet together. Some of the other congregations in the area, I've been in contact with them and uh, they're planning to come and to support the meeting as well. They're excited about this and I know that you are as well. So keep this in your prayers and be looking forward to that meeting beginning again one week from today, September 19th through 22nd is when the meeting will take place. Many of you I know weren't alive or don't remember what happened on September 11th, 2001. If you do remember, it's one of those days that you'll never forget. You remember where you were, you remember when you heard the news, you remember what you did that day. You know, I can't remember some of the things I did last week, but I can remember what I did that day. There's something about a tragedy that, that unfolds before our eyes that really makes a deep impression on us. And on the 20th anniversary of what happened on September 11th, when cruel and evil men decided that they were going to do harm to people in our country, I thought it would be good for us to spend a few moments reflecting on what took place that day, but from this angle, what lessons would God have us to learn from 9-11? Open your Bibles if you haven't already done so to Luke chapter 13, the passage that Jeff read just a moment ago. I'm fascinated by the kind of preacher that Jesus is because nobody's ever preached like him. Nobody's ever dealt with and handled topics and subjects like Jesus did. Those of us who preach and teach, we could only begin to hope to aspire to even a, a fraction of the kind of preacher that Jesus is. 
And it's fascinating to me as a preacher to notice that sometimes Jesus spoke about current events. Not always. And certainly it wasn't something that he majored in. Jesus didn't spend all of his time talking about current events, what was in the news in his day. But in Luke 13, he did. The Bible says that some were present and they told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. You see that in Luke 13, 1? Some people had come to worship and Pilate had had them killed. It doesn't give us any more information than that. If we had lived 2,000 years ago, we would have been familiar with that. That was, that was front page news. That was the lead story. And they told Jesus about this and Jesus begins to comment on it. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, I don't talk about current events. I don't deal with those questions and, and things that people are wondering about. No, rather Jesus took the opportunity from a current event and gave some lessons. Look at this in verse two. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. Then he makes a spiritual application. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus goes a step further. He brings up a different current event. He says in verse four, of those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. My point in bringing this passage to your attention is there were things happening that were tragic in the days of Jesus. And sometimes he was asked about those things and sometimes he took the opportunity to make, to make spiritual applications, to make points and bring lessons to people's minds that they need to hear. I believe there are some lessons that you need to hear. I believe there are some things that all of us ought to contemplate. Like you, I saw a lot of what people were bringing to remembrance on TV the last few days and people were talking about the heroism and, and the, uh, the good things that maybe came from this tragic set of circumstances, but not much from a spiritual perspective was being brought out. We need to think spiritually because we're people of God and because God teaches us to do so. Five lessons from what we witnessed on 9-11 that every single human being ought to contemplate. Number one, life is uncertain. Life is uncertain. As much as we would like to assume that things are always going to be the way they are, experience and the Bible both teach differently. In Hebrews 9, verse 27, the Bible emphasizes that there are two points, two days that lie in the future for every one of us. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it is appointed to man once to die and after that, the judgment. There are two days fixed in your future, the day of your death and the day of your judgment. And you don't know the day of either. You don't know the time of either. It is uncertain. And we are arrogant in the extreme when we live as if things are always going to be there for us and we're always going to make sure that our plans take place. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 90 verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might gain or present a heart of wisdom to you. Teach us to number our days. More people today are living their lives without any thought to how many days they might have left. But life is uncertain. And what we saw unfold 20 years ago on that day should have forever etched in our memories the idea that we don't know how long any of us have. 
Psalm 89 verse 47, the psalmist says, remember how short my time is. Methuselah is the man in Genesis 5 who, as far as Scripture records, lived longer than anybody else. Remember how long Methuselah lived? Over 900 years. And even though Methuselah lived for nine centuries, almost a thousand, when you take his life and you compare it to eternity, it's just a drop in the bucket. Our lives are uncertain. You have your Bible? Open, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. In James chapter 4, the Bible tells us that our life is like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. It's just a little vapor that's here for a time, but we don't know what our life is going to be like tomorrow. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 6, the apostle Paul writes to Christians and he says this, Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Thieves don't announce when they're going to come, when they're going to rob you, when they're going to cut off the catalytic converter from your car. They don't tell you in advance when that's going to happen. Like a thief in the night is when they come, when, when they come and that's the way the day of the Lord's going to be. And then it says in verse three, for when people say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as a woman upon, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. And then look at verse four, but you brethren, you're not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of that day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Verse six, watch and be sober. One of the things that 9-11 should have reminded us to do is to watch and to be sober because the day of the Lord, the end of our lives, and even yes, the day of judgment comes by surprise as a thief in the night. Life is uncertain. Another lesson that ought to have been etched into our memories based on this event on 9-11. Many people are deeply committed to lost causes. If sincerity alone made us good people, the terrorists on 9-11 were good people. If sincerity is what makes you a good person, if sincerity is what makes your life worth living, then they were good people and their lives were worth living. But the fact is, and ensuing years have shown this as well, there are multiplied millions of people that live in this world and they have given their lives and they've given their ideas, ideals to false and lost causes. Those terrorists that got on those planes that day, they believed with all their hearts that they were serving Allah. They believed with all their hearts that they were doing His will, that they were destroying people who were infidels to their faith, they believed with all their hearts that what they were doing was something that their God approved of. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 speaks about the God that we serve and he's a very different God than the God of Islam. And I don't mean any offense by saying that, but it is important to point that out. He's a different God, the Bible, the God of the Bible than the God of Islam. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. I don't change. He is the same, he is perfect in his holiness, in his compassion, in his justice. The God of the Bible is very different. 
And when we serve any other God than the God that we read about in Scripture, the one living God, the true God, when we serve any other God, we've given our lives to lost causes. When you stop and think about what people die for, what people willingly give their lives for, people give their lives willingly for honor, people give their lives willingly for their families, for their nations, for a set of ideals and principles. Jesus even said this in John 15, verse 13. He said, greater love has no one than this, than a man should lay down his life for his friends. What would you give your life for? What would be so important to you that you would say, I'm gonna lay down my life for this? Many people in this world are committed to lost causes. Matthew 7 verse 12 ought to be a rule that helps us to understand some of the foundational things about what we would give our lives for. It says, whatever you'd have men to do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7 12 is about compassion, it's about love, it's about thoughtfulness, it's about living your life by a set of principles that thinks of others first and self last. In Galatians chapter one, verses six through eight, the Bible speaks about one gospel. The gospel that God has revealed to us and that we ought to take and we ought to live out its implications and its commandments, that's worth living for and that's worth dying for. Not much else in this world is. But it will not change the fact that there are many people in this life that are willing and ready to die for lost causes. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 challenges us as Christians to remember that our hope is not a false hope. It's not just a guess kind of hope. I, I hope things work out. It is a living hope, 1 Peter 1 verse 3, that Christians hold on to. Christians can die and they can even give their lives willingly with the, no, with the knowledge that there's a living hope and it's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not everybody has that hope. Many are willing to die for lost causes. 9-11 reminded us of that. Another lesson from 9-11 to think about. Nothing here is permanent. Nothing here is permanent. What do you mean by nothing here? I mean nothing in this world. The things that we see and the things that we try so desperately to hang on to. Since 9-11, prepping has become a big thing. Getting ready. I don't know what they're getting ready for, but people are getting ready. You know, stockpiling food and stockpiling ammunition and getting little gold coins and stashing them away in secret places in their houses and putting them in safe deposit boxes. And still, this is a lesson worth remembering. Nothing that I have in my possession is permanent. Nothing. You know, we think about what happened on 9-11. People saw those airplanes fly into those towers in New York City. And you would think if you had walked by those towers the day before, you'd think, I don't know how they would ever bring those down. I don't know how if somebody wanted to raise this and develop new real estate, I don't know how that would ever happen because those buildings look pretty permanent. And the next day they were gone. And the same thing can be true of just about anything in this world. What about wealth? 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 challenges us and says, you know, when you think about getting rich and you think that that's really what life is all about and having more stuff and more, more to, 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 to make your life comfortable, you are gonna pierce your soul through with many sorrows. One of the reasons why that's true is because wealth is not permanent. 
Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 18. Neither your silver nor your gold will deliver you in the day of the Lord's wrath. Think about that. When the day of the Lord comes, it doesn't matter how wealthy we are, our wealth can't save us and our wealth will not help us. Wealth isn't permanent, neither is opportunity. There were people who went off into eternity on that day, September 11th, 2001. They had gone to work as normal day. They had gone to school as it was a normal day. And suddenly every opportunity that they thought was going to be available in their lives from that point on was taken from them. You know, a lot of us, we live our lives as if we've got infinite opportunities. I've heard people talk about spiritual things and they say, you know, I'm gonna get my act together someday. One of these days, I'm gonna make the right choice. I'm gonna do what I know is right, but not today. Some more convenient day, I'll do it. Acts 24, verse 25. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You don't know how many opportunities the Lord will afford you. Make the most of the opportunities he gives. Your health isn't permanent, is it? When we're young, we kind of think we're invincible, we're bulletproof, and as we get older, we start to realize that Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about health and about it failing. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is almost a, uh, it's almost a physician's report on what happens to people as they age. But that chapter begins in Ecclesiastes 12 verse one with this commandment. It says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth because there are times coming when your health will fail as you get older. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Even the world itself is not permanent. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, the Bible describes a fire that consumes both the heavens and the earth. Why do we invest so much energy and time and thought into the things of this world when the Bible plainly says they will be consumed with fire on the last day. As a matter of fact, Peter goes on in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 11 through 13 and says, seeing that this world is going to be consumed by fire, what manner of persons ought you to be in all godliness, in all holiness, in righteous living? You ought to live differently You know, one of the things about apocalyptic literature in the Bible, books like Revelation and Ezekiel and Daniel, apocalyptic language, it's trying to convey the emotional upheaval that happens to people when the permanent things in life all of a sudden aren't permanent. When we realize that mountains can be thrown into the sea, that the sun can become as sackcloth and the moon can become as blood. And, and that kind of language is there in the Bible to share with us kind of the emotions that some of us felt on 9-11. The idea that security and wealth and opportunities and buildings that are there in some of the most, most advanced cities in the entire world can just be gone. Nothing's permanent. And because that's true, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 would tell us that we shouldn't make this world our home. It's not. We are strangers and pilgrims here. We are sojourners. We're here for a little while and then we're going somewhere else. And therefore, don't try to pick up too much baggage on your way through life. Put it down and run with endurance the race that is set before you. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. 
We should have been reminded of that and were on 9-11-2001. And another lesson, commitment is often fleeting. I'm a preacher. I had just begun preaching September 11, 2001. I'd been preaching at a local congregation for a little over a month. And one of the amazing things about what happened immediately after September 11th and those attacks was that people started coming to worship services in droves. Churches across this country were suddenly filled up with people who were unsettled, who were looking for answers, who were looking for something more and somebody to explain to them, why did these things happen and what does God have to say about these things? And for a couple of months, September, October, probably happened here in Katy, I wasn't here at that time, but probably happened here as well. For a couple of months, there was a dramatic increase in attendance and people thinking about spiritual things and people thinking about God and his will. But by November, December, by Christmas of that year, people had, quote unquote, gotten back to normal. We hear that these days, don't we? In the middle of a pandemic, let's get back to normal. Whatever normal's gonna be, let's get back to normal. In 2001, we were saying the same things. And it reminded me, and still does, that there are a lot of people in this world that in fits and starts say, you know, it's really time for me to be committed to God. It's really time for me to be committed to his will. And they'll do it for a little while and then for whatever reason, there may be a litany of reasons, they give up. Hosea chapter six, verse four, the prophet Hosea charges the people of God with having a faithfulness that's like a morning cloud. It's like the fog in the morning This time of year, we start to have fog early in the morning when the weather's getting a little bit cooler. We start to have fog in the early morning. But you know that by the time the sun rises, that fog is gonna burn off. And that's what God's saying about those people's faith. He's saying your faith is like the fog in the morning. As soon as the sun rises, it's not gonna be there anymore. And I wonder if God would look at us, some of us individually and say, your faithfulness, it's a commendable thing, but it's like a morning cloud. Revelation 3.16, Jesus talked to the church at Laodicea and he said, you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm. And because of that, I will spew you out of my mouth. It is repulsive to me. If you're gonna serve me, serve me. If you're gonna reject me, reject me. But don't do this half-hearted, walking the fence type of faith. Don't do that. Commitment is often fleeting. In Joel chapter two, Joel dealt with a natural disaster. If you've read the book of Joel, it seems that a locust swarm had come through the land and had devastated the crops and people were weeping and wailing and asking why did this happen to us? But then as their crops started to grow again, you know what they did? They forgot about God and they were getting back to normal. And you wanna know what Joel says in Joel 2.13? Rend your hearts and not just your garments. The way that you express that you were grieving in the days of Joel is that you would tear your clothing. And it was a sign, you would walk around with this torn clothing. It was a sign to everybody that I'm grieving over something that's tragic. This tragedy has taken place, these locusts have come through. And Joel says, it's not enough for you just to be sorry and not enough just for you to tear your garments. Rend your hearts too. 
There's a need in many of our lives to rend our hearts when it comes to being committed to God and realizing that serving him ought to be the priority and the emphasis of our lives, nothing else. Rend your heart and not your garment. There are a lot of people that are sincere in their lives. Mark 4:19 mentions that they are like good soil, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, they creep in like thorns and weeds and they begin to choke God's word out of our lives. Commitment is often fleeting. Luke 9 verse 62, Jesus himself said, no one who has set his hand to the plow and turning back is fit for the kingdom of God. God would challenge you this morning Make a commitment, make a decision, and stick with that decision. Live with the challenge of trying to follow me and serve me. Be faithful to that because so many times our faithfulness is like a morning cloud, here for a while and then gone. And then this, one of the things that was really good outcome-wise about 9-11 was the remembrance and a reminder that ultimately God is in control. So many people in the aftermath of that and in the years since have said things to that effect that God is in control. Psalm 148 verse 5, God is the one who brought this world into existence. He spoke and this world was created. And then in Psalm 148 verse 13, the Bible calls all of creation to give honor and praise and glory to God because he alone is exalted. He alone is high. He is the one that ought to be emphasized and ought to be adored and ought to be worshiped. He is in control. Tragic and terrible and sinful and wicked things happen in this world, but ultimately God is in control. He sees it all, he will judge it all, and he will be righteous and fair in making his judgments. The Bible is resplendent with words and phrases about God's control. Daniel 4.17 to one of the most powerful rulers in the world at that time, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Daniel the prophet said, the most high rules in the kingdoms of men. He's in charge. He's the one, God is, who decides the boundaries and the borders of the nations. He's the one that brings nations up and then causes nations to fall. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. God is in control of history. He's in control of what happens in this world. He's in control and will judge righteously. Even Jesus, as he stood before Pilate in John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, Jesus looked at Pilate and said, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. The lesson, brothers and sisters and friends, is that even though we elect presidents and we appoint kings and emperors, even though we put people in different government positions, God is ultimately the one who's in control of history and we need to respond to him and pray to him on behalf of those who govern. First Timothy chapter one verses, First Timothy chapter two verses one through five mentions how Christians have an obligation to continually pray for those who are in authority that they might govern wisely on behalf of the church especially. God's in control. You know, it was a tragedy what happened 20 years ago, and I know we've kind of relived all of that in the last week or so, those of us who were alive at that time and remember those things. 
Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. You want to know something? It was tragic what happened, but the greater tragedy would be for you and me to live our lives and to be lost. The greater tragedy would be for you and me to live our lives and never decide that we're going to follow Jesus Christ and we're going to submit to his will and we're going to do his bidding, follow his commandments. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize you need to respond to the gospel through belief in Jesus Christ, through confession of his name, through repentance of your sin, and then through baptism in water for the remission of sin. A person can go from being lost and without Christ and without hope to being in a relationship with him. Baptism is the new birth into Jesus Christ, John chapter three, verse five. And if you're ready to make that commitment this morning, or if you'd like to respond and you'd like to ask for prayers, won't you make your need known? Just come down the aisle while together we stand and sing this song of encouragement.